Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. I know that a very common question that a lot of Christians ask, I mean, it's a question I think a lot of people ask, but a lot of questions, or a lot of the question a lot of Christians ask in particular, um, arises from this situation. That is, you're, you, you look out in the world and you see people who have no interest in God, people who uh, maybe even defy God, people who live as if God doesn't exist, um, and yet everything they touch seems to turn to gold. Everything goes well for them. They seem to have no troubles whatsoever. Um, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. We look at the world and we see those who are engaging in wickedness seem to flourish, but those who are working hard, trying to obey God, being faithful, being devoted, seem to be overcome with various forms of trouble and suffering and difficulty. And we ask a very reasonable question, where is God in all of this? And we find ourselves becoming a little bit cynical about God, a little bit disillusioned about Him. We might even find ourselves a little bit angry at Him because it seems like God favors sometimes the wicked and is um, not interested in blessing the faithful and the righteous. And that is exactly the situation that Malachi is addressing in our passage this morning. The people of Malachi's day, Israel, the people of God, uh, had returned to the land after being in exile, back to Jerusalem, but um, Israel is not quite like it used to be, and they look out at the world and they see all of these pagan nations flourishing and growing. They remember the days when Israel was highly regarded, but that's not the case anymore. They go to the temple to worship, and it seems like the glory of God has departed, and the people are thinking to themselves, we're the good guys here, we're the righteous ones, we're the devoted ones, and yet it seems like everybody outside the church is thriving except for us. And it seems so unjust. So Malachi is taking up that issue. And as I've been telling you through this series, Malachi is a prophet sent by God to challenge his people. And the subtitle to this sermon series is Malachi, a dialogue with God about spiritual boredom. And so this is what's been happening in the land during this time. The people are bored with God. They're disillusioned with God. They're pessimistic about Him. They're cynical about Him. And God sends Malachi to wake them up. And that's what this passage is about. Um, the format of Malachi, remember, six disputations, six disputes, you might say, between the people and God. Uh, we're at disputation number four today. And here's what happens. The people come and they throw up this accusation against God and God provides an answer to them. And the accusation that the people are bringing today is this. Where is the God of justice? God, it seems like you favor the wicked and you don't care about us. Are you a God of justice or not? And God answers this question for them in this passage, but he doesn't answer it in the way that people are expecting and he doesn't answer it in the way that, that you and I might expect either. And so maybe one lesson we learn is that we ought to be pretty careful when we start demanding an answer from God. 
when we start demanding that God give an account to us for the way he does things, uh, we should certainly do that cautiously, if at all. So let's read this passage. Just please stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Malachi 2. I'm going to pick up on verse 17, which is at the very end of chapter 2. And then we'll just read through chapter 3, verse 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. A God, Lord in heaven, we thank you that you have um, written down your will and your words for us on the pages of Scripture. Uh, but we need not just your words, we need your spirit to understand what you mean by these things. So, Father, help us, God. Help us to know what you mean. Help us to understand what you're telling us today through this passage. And help us to leave in obedient faith to you as we hear you speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we see here in verse 17 how um, this whole thing starts. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Uh, This is what is said to God's people. Now that word... They're weary doesn't mean that God is getting tired or worn out like he's run a marathon and he's trying to catch his breath or something. It's not that kind of wearisomeness. It's, uh, it's more like a kind of an annoyance, really. It means more agitated. God is kind of agitated by his people pointing a finger at him and questioning whether he is a God of justice or not. Now, I think one thing I want to say before we go any further is that I don't think there's anything wrong with just simply asking that question or wondering about whether God is a God of justice or not. I mean, all of us probably have had that thought. And when you look at Scripture, you look at the book of Habakkuk, for instance, or you look at the 73rd Psalm, those two portions of Scripture are about exactly this, about godly people looking at the world and just being perplexed at why the wicked seem to flourish. So... It's okay to ask that question. It's okay to to deal with it. But I think there's a difference between honest inquiry and hypocritical accusation. And that's what's going on among God's people at this time. There's a hypocritical 
critical accusation going on. They don't really have a right to be making this uh, plea or this question. And so let's take a look and see how God deals with this. So what God says here in response to them is that justice is coming. I am a God of justice, and here's how I'm going to do it. And the first thing is this. There is a person who is going to come and is going to bring justice. The person bringing justice. So let's look here in chapter 3, starting with verse 1. The question has been asked, where is the God of justice at the end of chapter 2? And uh, these first couple of verses can be a little, a little confusing because it seems like there's basically three individuals in view here. So verse 1, behold, I send my messenger. So who, who's the I here? Well, I think this is, this is Yahweh. This is uh, the God of the Old Testament, the creator of the universe. This is um, God the Father, and he is expressing his intention to send my messenger. So now we've got a messenger involved here. This is now uh, a distinct, different individual. And this messenger is going to come, and he's going to prepare the way before me. So who is this messenger? Well, this is one of those situations where really the answer is not too hard to figure out. There's lots in the Bible that kind of confuse us, but um, the blessing of having a New Testament is we can look to the New Testament to solve a lot of the issues that are raised in the Old Testament. And when we look at the New Testament, we see this. This is Luke chapter 7. It says, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John and he says this to the crowds, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, he's talking about John the Baptist. This is he of whom it was written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So there's a quotation of the Malachi passage we're looking at right now, Luke chapter 7. And what Jesus is saying is that that passage in Malachi refers to John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is going to come. John the Baptist, who some say is the last of the Old Testament prophets, maybe even subsequent to Malachi. Some say he's the, kind of the, the, the first messenger of the New Covenant. So John the Baptist is kind of in the middle of the two during this kind of merging transition time. But John's going to play this role as a messenger who prepares the way. Uh, it's very common, you know, that someone comes to introduce very important people. You know, that's not unusual. When someone very important arrives, you, you roll out the red carpet, right? And you announce the person's coming. That's kind of the role that John the Baptist played. So, these two things. God, I will send my messenger. The messenger is John the Baptist. But then it goes on, and it says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. So now it seems like we've got, we've got another person here, someone called the messenger of the covenant, someone who is different than John the Baptist. This is the person for whom John the Baptist is preparing the way for. So who is this? Who is this messenger of the covenant. Well, let's look for a few clues here uh, in these verses. We see that this messenger is the one whom you seek, it says in the middle of verse 1. The one whom you seek. So this must be someone who has been anticipated, somebody that the people of God have been waiting for, someone that they're hoping to come. That is the Messiah, the promised Messiah. 
And what else do we see here about this person? Where is he coming? He's coming to, again, verse 1, his temple. This person is coming, and this person owns the temple. The temple belongs to him. I mean, to whom does the temple of God belong? God, right? God owns the temple. This person is coming to his temple, and even if you go back a little bit in verse 1, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. God the Father saying, this is something is going to happen to prepare the way for my coming, but I'm going to be coming as a messenger of the covenant. And so we have this kind of odd um, coupling of phrases. It's like God is the one who's sending, but then God is also the one who's being sent at the same time. What, what's going on here? Remember John chapter 1, at the very beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God? The Word was God, divine, but the Word was with God. There's a distinction. There's two divine beings here in John 1, and that's what we're seeing here also. God sending and a divine being being sent as messenger of the covenant who is the Messiah, who owns the temple and who comes after John, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Malachi is talking about. This, this is a prophecy looking ahead to the divinity of the Son of God, the Messiah, and we're also getting a little peek here into the distinctions that exist within the triune Godhead. The Trinity starting to kind of take shape in the Old Testament. And so we see this here in John chapter 1. John, there's two different Johns here, okay? <laughs> the guy who wrote John is different than John the Baptist. This is in John chapter 1. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He existed long before me, but he's coming after me. He existed before me because he's the eternal son of God, but he's coming after me in the person of the man, Jesus Christ. And so what we have here is this is an affirmation of the divinity of Jesus. This is God saying, I'm coming, and I'm coming in the, in, in, as a man. I'm coming in the person of Jesus. And so when we look at Jesus and we consider who Jesus is, we have to acknowledge Jesus is not just any other religious leader. Jesus is God in the flesh, the creator of the universe coming to us as a man. And I love it when I see people identify this. Uh, you know, Bono, the lead singer of U2, has even acknowledged this publicly, was interviewed uh, a few years ago, and, and he just nails it here. The secular response, he says, to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet. Obviously, very interesting guy. <laughs> Had a lot to say, just like the other great prophets, Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. 
Friends, this is something that, that you have to, to wrestle with. I mean, if you're one who maybe is not a Christian yet and you're investigating the, the Bible and the claims of Christianity, this is absolutely central to what we believe as Christians. Jesus was a teacher, yeah, and he was a prophet. I mean, we want to acknowledge that, but he was more than that. Jesus doesn't allow you to limit him to those two offices. You've got to take Jesus as God in the flesh or you don't take him at all. And what Jesus said is, he who does not believe who I said I was will die in his sins. Jesus identifies himself as God. Do you believe that? Very important. No other religious leader claims to be God. Jesus does. This is what sets apart Christianity from all other religions. Those who like to say all religions are kind of different ways to the same God. How can that be when Jesus is God? And he's the only one who claims to be God and the only one who has demonstrated that through his teaching, through his miracles, and through his resurrection from the dead. Is Jesus your teacher only? Is he a religious leader to you only? Or is he God in the flesh, supreme and preeminent? That's the person who's coming to bring justice, and that's what Malachi is saying. So secondly then, we see the behaviors of God's people that require this justice. There um, are certain behaviors and habits that have taken place among God's people, and this is why God says, I'm coming in justice. And they're listed in verse 5 of chapter 3. Do you see that? Then I will draw near to you for judgment, he says. And now he lists. Here, here's why I'm coming to you in judgment. Now, I don't think this is a list of like the very worst sins that could ever be committed. I think probably this is just a list of the sins that were prevalent in Malachi's day at the time. But um, let's just go through this briefly. Here are the things that God does not like, that God judges people for. Sorcery it says, to begin with. Sorcery clearly forbidden in the Old Testament. We can look at Deuteronomy um, chapter 18. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. That's what some of the other pagan nations, surrounding nations were doing. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. The reason this is so serious is that it seems to be often an attempt by people to kind of uh, command the spiritual world on their own. It's a way of kind of manipulating and controlling spirits, a way of doing what only God can do. And so, friends, I mean, if you're ever invited to, um, you know, tell fortunes or talk to the dead. That's what a necromancer is. Uh, these are things you should avoid. These are things that God calls an abomination, and these are things that must have been practiced with some regularity uh, among God's people at this time. So sorcery, adultery, is next on this lift, list. I will be a swift witness against adulterers. So I think we all know what that is, is having sexual relations with anyone who is not your spouse. And last week's sermon, we saw that uh, Malachi was rebuking the people because the men were divorcing their wives after they'd gotten a little older and they got kind of tired of them and married younger women of other nations and other gods. And so God rebuked that clearly. And so um, 
we know from that passage that some kind of an adultery was, was taking place. Uh, we also see swearing falsely um, against those who swear falsely. So this is probably talking about lying under oath, kind of like in a court situation, made all the more aggravated by the fact that this is a situation where everyone has a very keen interest in the truth, and everybody knows that's what's being sought, and yet the person instead swears falsely, lies. Uh, A lot of lying going on in Israel at this time. And then we see oppression going on. Again, still in verse Five against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. So apparently there were employers here who were paying workers less than what was agreed upon, or they might have been um, not paying their workers at the end of the day, which would have been customary for a worker to expect. Uh, They might have been paying workers an unlivable wage. And so this is a great concern to God. And, you know, we, this is part of what's going on, isn't it, in the Muncie Community School System right now, as there are kind of debates about how money is handled. I know it's a very complex situation, but uh, I just want to show you how relevant this is. This is a question that a lot of people are asking. What is a livable wage, and what is a proper wage to give a worker? And that was part of the concern here in Malachi's day. But there's also the widow and the orphan mentioned, the widow and the fatherless. That's those who are weak and vulnerable, those who have no assets, those who don't have a voice or an advocate, no one to speak up for them. These are people who cannot secure justice on their own, so they need to rely on others to secure justice for them. And apparently that was being taken advantage of, and no one was sticking up for the orphan and the widow. And we see this in James chapter 1, reiterated, religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. So we see a lot of these things mentioned here. That it's not like they were just for Old Testament Israel. These have continued relevance for us as the people of God in the new covenant. And then the last thing we see here is a mention of the sojourner those who thrust aside the sojourner. The sojourner is um, one who is a a foreigner or an alien. It's a person um, who is in a country, but it's not his or her country of origin. Um, So what might leap to a lot of your minds as you read this is immigration. And, of course, we have a, a huge immigration issue in our nation right now. Uh, A lot of different opinions about how that should be handled, and I'm not going to get into this in any great detail right now. That's not what this text is about, but the sojourner is mentioned, so um, I I just think we need to approach this whole situation with with caution and humility. Uh, it's, It's complex, a lot of different opinions, even among the church. Um, Some things to note, though, is that the sojourner here mentioned, and when that word is mentioned in the Old Testament, uh, should not be equated with an illegal immigrant. Some people are making that one-to-one correlation. The sojourner in Old Testament Israel generally was a welcomed guest or someone who was even a permanent resident uh, in the country and who was complying with the laws 
of the land. Um, but nonetheless, I think an important distinction that needs to be made is the distinction between the church and the state in this situation. And the state, of course, has its, its own laws, and every state in the world enforces, seeks to enforce its laws, and should be expected to do that. But that's a little different than the church. In the church, we don't enforce laws in the land. The church is different than the state. And the church should be a place where all people of all races, whether they're immigrants or not, are welcomed. The church is a place where mercy and grace are extended to all kinds of people. So whether an immigrant is legal or illegal, you should be welcome in a place of worship. I don't know that we've had to deal with that situation uh, at New Life, but I hope that's clear. The Bible says this. This is kind of what undergirds this concern that God has for the sojourner. Here it is in Deuteronomy chapter 10. God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, the alien, the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. So, therefore, this is the command. Love the sojourner. The reason for this is because you were sojourners one day. Remember Israel? When you were out of your nation and you were living in Egypt and you were under bondage, remember? That was you one day. Don't forget that. When you start dealing with people who come into your land, that's the lesson. And I think this is good for any of us. And if we update this for kind of New Testament, New Covenant Christians, anytime we kind of, you know, get kind of self-righteous and looking down our nose at people who are different than us or people who, who don't live like us or believe like us, you should remember one day you were under the wrath of God. One day you were enslaved to the devil. One day you were under God's condemnation. Don't forget that, Christian. Mercy was shown to you. You are a recipient of mercy. So show mercy to others. But that apparently is not what was happening in Israel. They were not showing any mercy to the sojourner, and this was a behavior requiring God's justice. So, last thing now. The people receiving justice. That's what the rest of this passage in verses kind of 2 through 4 deals with. Remember what the complaint is. Here are the people. They're saying, where is the God of justice? And this is meant as kind of an accusation against God. And the answer that God gives them, like I said earlier, is not what they would expect. And, and here's why it's not what they expect. Because their assumption, the assumption of the people of Israel here is, we're the good guys here. And when we say we want justice, what we want is justice for others. We want justice for people in the world. We want God to get the bad guys out there. And they're assuming that that's how God is going to respond. But what God says instead is, yeah, justice is coming. And it's coming to you, Israel. I'm coming to judge you. Look at verse 1. Again, the temple issue. The Lord whom you seek is going to suddenly come to his temple. He's not going out to the pagan shrines. He's coming to the temple. That's where judgment is starting. Look at verse 3. He will sit as a refiner, purifier, silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. He's going to purify the sons of Levi. Who are that? Those are the priests. Those are the religious leaders of the church. 
That's who God is coming to judge. You know, this finds New Testament parallel right here in 1 Peter. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. God is a whole lot more interested, friends, in holiness in the church than holiness in the world. God is interested mostly in the way Christians, in the way people in the church approach sorcery and adultery and lying and oppression and the sojourner. What God is interested in is how we deal with that. He wants holiness here, not in the world. Now, of course, he wants the gospel to go to the world, and he wants people to come to faith and come into the church, but God is most interested in his people. And so what God is saying here, what Malachi is saying, is that God's going to come, and he's going he's to judge you, Israel, and, and here's how this is going to happen. This Messiah is going to come. We already established that. This Messiah, Jesus, the divine Son of God who comes after John. And in verse 2, we, we see how... You know, stunning this is going to be. Who can endure the day of his coming when this Messiah comes? The implication there is nobody can because this is the holy, pure, righteous Son of God, the one who is faithful and true. Nobody can stand before him. But here's what he's going to do. Verse 2, he's going to sit as a refiner. No, excuse me, verse 2 says um, he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. In verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And so the the judgment here that is in view is a a purifying kind of cleansing judgment. And so, you know, these words here at the end of verse 2, refiner's fire, what is that? Fuller's soap. I mean, what... What is that? Refiner's fire. That's... Here's what people would do. They would get these precious metals, silver and gold, and they would melt them down to liquid, and when they became liquid, all the impurities would rise to the top, and then they would just scrape off the impurities. And then the metal would harden again, and it would be made more pure. And the way the refiner would know that it was uh, like premium purity is that he could look at it and see his face in it, see his reflection. And he would know, all the impurities are gone, this is a pure metal, a fuller soap. A fuller is like a launderer to someone who washes clothes. And so the fuller soap is the one who takes dirty clothes and gets rid of the dirt. You might say bleaches the clothes or whitens the clothes, purifies the clothes. That's what Jesus is going to do. That's the kind of judgment that is in view here. It's a purifying kind of judgment. So how does this happen? We've seen it's the coming of the Messiah, and when he comes one day, this kind of judgment is going to occur. Well, here's the way it's going to happen. It's through the gospel. The gospel is the fulfillment of this. When Jesus comes, he's already come, but, you know, looking ahead from Malachi's perspective, when Jesus comes, the Messiah, what he's going to do is lay down his life on a cross. He's going to pay the penalty for sins, and he's going to purify a people for himself. Finally, the people of God are going to be made pure through what this divine Savior is going to do. And look at this, what it says in um, Titus. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own 
possession. So here's really how this judgment's going to take place. Now that Jesus has come, the gospel goes forth, and here's all these people hearing the gospel. There are some who receive the gospel, believe the gospel, have their sins purified, and there are others who reject the gospel and remain under God's condemnation. And that's how God is purifying his people. That's how he's wiping away the impurities, wiping away the dross. Those who receive Jesus are the pure ones. Those who don't are not. Now here's something that Malachi probably didn't see. And that is that when Jesus comes, when this Messiah comes, he's going to come in two stages. Sometimes with these prophecies, they don't see things quite as clearly as you and I do from the benefit of the New Testament. But when Jesus comes, he's going to come in two stages. So he came once, right? He came 2,000 years ago. And here's something very important to understand, friends. When Jesus came the first time, he came in grace. He came in mercy. Next week is Palm Sunday. Isn't it? Right? I got that right? Yeah. Next week is Palm Sunday. And what we celebrate in Palm Sunday is Jesus entering Jerusalem. And do you remember what he was riding when he entered Jerusalem? He's riding a donkey. Right? You know what a donkey is a symbol of? It's a symbol of peace. Jesus came the first time in peace. He didn't come to judge. He didn't come to crush. He came saying, I'm coming gently and peacefully and graciously, and I'm offering myself to any who would take me. But you know, Jesus is going to come again. His coming is in two stages. And when he comes again, he's coming in judgment. And he's not coming riding a donkey. He's coming riding a horse. Revelation 19, the one who's faithful and true, riding a white horse. You know what a horse is a symbol of? War. Jesus is coming a second time to judge. But that time hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting for that time. And maybe you're one who's thinking, where is this God that I keep hearing about? It's been 2,000 years now since he came, and I'm told that he's coming again, but I don't see him. And you're growing pessimistic, and you're growing cynical, and you're being disillusioned with this promise. You're starting to wonder if this whole Christianity thing is true. Friends, you ought to be thankful for every single moment that goes by where Jesus hasn't come back, because every one of those moments is an opportunity for you to repent of your sin and turn to this Savior who comes to you in grace. That time is now. That time is now. Every moment he doesn't come back is another moment, another day, for your friends and your family members and your co-workers to repent of their sin and turn to Jesus. You've got two options, friends. You can meet Jesus right now in grace and mercy and kindness. Or you can meet him when he comes again. In judgment. And you don't want that. You want to meet him right now. In grace. Martin Luther said this. There are two days on my calendar, he said. This day and that day. Two important days on everybody's calendar. This day, the day that you have an opportunity to turn to Christ and be saved. And that day, when he comes in judgment. And until that day, 
comes. And we don't know when it's going to happen, but he's coming. Until that day, we walk by faith, not by sight, assured that just as all of God's promises have come true, so will this one come true too. And we're going to sing about that now. So let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful that you are a faithful God to your promises. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God of justice who upholds what is right and true. And we thank you, Father, that you have come to us in grace. Thank you for your mercy, for extending peace to us in the gospel. Um, God, remove our cynicism and give us faith in your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. and stand as we um, respond and sing.